Test, test, test. Greetings, my name is Eugenia McGuire and you're listening to the Parenting Human Beings podcast. If you're a first-time listener, welcome. It's great to have you here. This is a podcast that serves parents, professionals, and anyone who's passionate about children and the future of our species. I'm happy to hear from you if you have questions or ideas for themes or topics that you would like to hear about in future episodes and segments. Send me an email at eugenia at parentinghumanbeings.com. As I mentioned in episode 5, I had the privilege of organizing a conference in Edmonton recently called Into the Heart of Trauma, which was a three-day event with nine speakers, including Dr. Gordon Neufeld, my mentor, and one of the foremost thinkers today in attachment theory. One of my respected colleagues, and I'm also honored to call her a friend, Jennifer Sommerfeld, spoke at the conference about healing after birth, a topic that she's very passionate and knowledgeable about. Jennifer and I have studied with a few of the same mentors over the years and definitely share similar perspectives about the importance of attachment, especially in the early years. Jennifer also hosts a podcast called Healing After Birth, which I've been listening to lately and very much enjoying. Today's episode will feature the recording of the lecture that Jennifer did at the conference entitled Healing After Birth, a Trauma-Informed Perspective in Postpartum Health. Jennifer Sommerfeld, Master of Arts in Counseling Psychology, has nearly two decades of experience in maternal health and psychology. In addition to being a counselor, Jennifer has also been a childbirth advocate, maternal educator, doula, midwifery apprentice, and published writer. She is the founder and creator of the Healing After Birth program, where she uses her expertise and voice to help advance the dialogue on motherhood, mental health, and healing. To learn more about Jennifer, visit www.jennifersummerfeld.com. Jennifer is a gifted speaker and a sincerely heart-centered human being, and I hope you enjoy her lecture on the subject as much as I did. I was really grateful that Eugenia invited me to speak at this conference, and I was also a bit confused in the sense of what can I offer. Um, yes, we're going into the heart of trauma. Yes, what I specialize in is trauma-informed care for perinatal health, and you're all educators, most of you. <laughs> and so it's like, how am I going to weave this in to Gordon Newfeld's work and the beautiful stories that were shared yesterday um, and the deep places that we've all gone together? And I realized that what, why this is so important, and, I, and Gordon spoke about this on um, our first day together, is because how we come into the world is really critical. And I'm gonna talk about epigenetics. And one of the pieces of the conversation that often gets neglected is the impact that that had on the mother and those who witnessed her birth experience. And so we talk about the impact that this has on the newborn in perinatal psychology. And Gordon talked about the impact that this can have on the newborn when he was talking about the hypersensitivity stuff and the autism. But very rarely are we talking about how this actually plays out in the postpartum and long-term, in particular, with attachment. So that's what I wanna talk about today. This is an overview. So obviously, 
combining years of experience and trying to share the conversations that I've been having in my own mind and the conversations that I've been having with mothers over the years is really hard to condense that into one hour. So I'm offering you my point of view. And it truly is an opportunity to perhaps change the conversation uh, or invite a conversation that isn't happening in the ways that I would like to see it happening, in particular around postpartum mental health. Oh, I feel like I'm hearing myself. It's really weird. <laughs> okay. So let's begin, maybe, there we go. So this is me, um, I don't always like talking about myself, but I think it's important to understand wh where I'm coming from and how I've merged two worlds together. And the two worlds that I've merged together is trauma-informed care and the childbirth milieu. Because when I started to study this, they weren't merging. So 21 years ago, I was actually, sorry, not 21 years ago, at the age of 21, I was studying at U of C in the Department of Kinesiology in the field of sports psychology, which is now known as performance psychology. Um, I was in grad school and I was working with uh, national level athletes uh, and junior national level athletes, and I was way over my head. <laughs> <laughs> in my comfort zone, had horrible imposter syndrome. And I never finished my thesis, so I did my two years of grad school, and unfortunately I burnt out and um, didn't have the confidence to finish, uh, later on understanding why. Um, but I took my knowledge of athletics and myself having been a university athlete and a, a nationally scouted athlete, uh, I took my understanding of preparing the mind for peak performance into my own birth experiences. And um, what, 19 years ago, 20 years ago, I was pregnant with my first son, uh, who's about to be 19 next week. And um, I, have got, I have two other children. So I've had three children, and in that process was born the passion of birth. And, and for those of you who are mothers, some of us get that passion, some of us want nothing to do with it. <laughs> I was one of those people that um, when I was pregnant, I had come from a, a very masculine-dominated worldview as an athlete and in the field of sports psychology and knew nothing about the world of birth. And of course, like everybody who finds out that they're pregnant for the first time, you're really excited to join the club and buy the what to expect when you're expecting book. And so of course, that's what I did. And then very soon afterwards, I literally threw it out. Uh, it had generated so much fear in me and also opened my eyes to what is happening behind this veil that we don't know about until we're in it. Um, and so, as a researcher, and at that time I was studying qualitative research, I was quite passionate about this and I started to dig into it. And for about 10 years of my life, I read every book imaginable on this topic. And one of the books that really, um, really inspired me, but also enraged me, actually there were two. One was called Immaculate Deception. Some of you may know of it, it was written in the 70s by a lady named Suzanne Arms. 
And it meant in the book Immaculate Deception, she started to uh, lay out what we now know as obstetrical violence. And she was talking about these birth experiences that were deeply wounding women, but nobody was talking about it. And I knew in my guts that there had to be a different way. And so um, that led me to read another book that really influenced me, and of course there were many, um, all the books by Dr. Michel Odant, who is a French um, medical doctor, obstetrician, and uh, researcher. Uh, he's now, I think, in his 80s. Um, his work deeply influenced my understanding of our physiology and how we birth instinctively, but then later helped me understand how we heal instinctively. So I'm going to get into that. Um, so his work, and then uh, Birth Without Violence was another book that um, really influenced, influenced me and, and ignited a rage and a passion that I've later understood many moms experience. We just don't talk about it. Uh, so, as you can see, I merged these two fields. I merged performance psychology uh, with giving birth, preparing our minds for what I consider to be optimal birthing experiences, and I was a, a radical. Um, and, then, uh, and then, of course, I went on to wear all these hats that she talked about, and I apprenticed as a traditional midwife for eight years, and I thought I would become a midwife, and I thought, you know, this is the answer. I'll work here. I never anticipated that I would be in the role that I'm in now. Um, so what happened was about nine years ago, shit hit the fan. Uh, I had multiple losses, about five major losses in my life um, that had accumulated, rattled me to my core, completely destabilized me, and brought all of my developmental trauma to the surface and uh, broke my brain. And that's how I talked about it. Um, have, you know, clearly I can articulate myself, clearly I love research and reading. At that point in time, I couldn't formulate a sentence. It would come out confused, simple, um, like jargon. I was having a really hard time taking what it was that I was thinking and being able to clearly articulate it. I knew something was wrong with me. I actually thought I was having early onset amnesia. It was very terrifying. My children, obviously, nine years ago were uh, early adolescence. They're now um, early adulthood and, and late teen years. And so this opened up the doorway to trauma. And because I'm so passionate about physiology, and I have this background in kinesthetics, when I started to research trauma, this was nine years ago. Nine years ago, we weren't having the conversation about trauma-informed care. This is recent. And there were very few um, practitioners who were specializing in trauma recovery. And nobody was telling me at that time what was actually going on with my brain. But I knew my brain was broken. But I truly believed I could fix it. And and so that went on to my healing journey. Um, just like what Ernestina shared yesterday, I did find a therapist who specialized in EMDR, and that was my first phase of healing, um, in which I got my brain back. 
that's how I put it. I got my brain back. It's like my nervous system restored itself and I could think again. And I wasn't having irrational emotional outbursts and I wasn't wanting to kill myself every single day. Sorry, that's loud. Um, so my healing journey, which I'm not actually going into today, really inspired me to look at what's happening in the birthing milieu and how much of our postpartum suffering and the symptoms and the diagnoses that we label as depression, anxiety, and psychosis are a result of unresolved trauma, in particular, birth trauma. So remembering that my passion is to change how we give birth, to be able to um, have conversations around supporting women to not only have choice, but to be informed, but to also have human, hum, humanitarian birthing experiences. We are in the most vulnerable, most vulnerable time of our life when we're giving birth. And so I just want to highlight how important it is to recognize that that time, aside from our death experience, is so critical. So that's what I've done. I've merged these two things together. I fixed my brain. I've been on a healing journey. I later went on to finally complete my master's in counseling psychology so that I could actually talk to people and they'd listen to me. <laughs> that's why I did it. Um, and that almost broke my brain again. But um, I've gone on to since publish this book and create a program to support moms to be able to heal um, after they've had a difficult birth experience. So I'm going to start here. Um, why are mothers suffering in the postpartum and why are we not looking at birth trauma as a contributing factor? This was the conversation that I was holding in my mind for a long time. We didn't call it birth trauma. We just called it shitty birthing experiences. We just called it, that's what birth is. We just called it, something went wrong, but I don't know what that is. And we swept it under the rug. There was no room for what it was that I experienced to be felt and to be explored. That's just what birth is. Some of the statistics, uh, and you know, as a qualitative researcher, sometimes statistics really piss me off because they don't mean anything. One person sharing their story of devastating experiences is enough, right? That's enough, just one. And we know there's far more than one. So some of the research says that one out of three women are impacted by birth trauma. This is recent research, more like within the past five years, because again, this language didn't exist until more recently. Now there's more studies coming out around the impact of what they call obstetrical violence. And so we need to be able to differentiate what is obstetrical violence versus birth trauma. Two to seven percent of postpartum women will be diagnosed with postpartum post-traumatic stress disorder. Again, this is a newer diagnosis. We would have never looked at this before. So 
PPTSD is postpartum post-traumatic stress disorder is reported as being underdiagnosed or misdiagnosed. I added the misdiagnosed, right? Because we're not looking at the implications that perhaps our birth experience had on the symptoms that we're experiencing in the postpartum and beyond. Uh, postpartum anxiety affects 16% of new mothers. Postpartum depression affects 19% or one out of four. Again, these are just numbers. I think that they're higher than that. Baby blues can affect up to 60 to 80% of new mothers. Baby blues. I mean, this, the, the language around this is frustrating for any of those of us who've experienced this. We don't want to be a statistic. Childbirth trauma robs mothers' experience of meaning. I think this is the piece that I want to highlight today because we spoke yesterday about how important it is to weave meaning into our stories, that our stories really is all we have as a human being, right? And how we tell that story is so important because we have the power to influence, we have the power to connect, we have the power to heal through our storytelling. And so if our experience was such that we were robbed of meaning, that something was completely lost, and we don't know how to make sense out of that, so we shove it away, we compartmentalize it. The, one of the most important experiences of our life, which is to bring life onto this planet, isn't being talked about. There's something wrong with that. And the World Health Organization, I think in 2015, called for action and advocacy to eliminate disrespectful and abusive treatment in childbirth. So people are starting to see that this is something we need to address. It's not normal. We shouldn't leave our birth experiences feeling like a piece of shit, like we are completely violated, like something was robbed, like something was missing, like something was lost, or like it was a walk in the park and we've completely forgotten about it. So in my conversations with moms, um, I often hear things like, I was not prepared for this. What's this, right? I wasn't prepared for this. I didn't expect the postpartum to be so hard. I put all my energy into preparing for the birth that I didn't prepare for this to happen. We'll unpack the this. And no one told me it would be this bad. So many of us moms are just so grateful that it's over, right? That we made it through, that we're alive, that we're strong. Our kids are gonna be okay, we're gonna be okay. And it's true. But what if what's happening in the postpartum is actually a normal response to an abnormal environment? What if it has nothing to do with you as a mom meaning there's nothing wrong with you, that you can't handle this because we shouldn't handle this under the circumstances that we're in. So all of that is resulting in mothers holding a silent belief, silent, because we don't talk about it that somehow they are failing as a mother, and this can sound like, I should have tried harder. I should be able to handle this. What is wrong with me? Why isn't it working? 
I should have known better. I should have prepared myself better or I shouldn't have prepared. Because maybe if I didn't have the dream that it'd be okay, I wouldn't be in grief. I wouldn't be so disappointed. I'm not cut out for this job. What if I'm damaging my baby? I'm failing at this. And almost 100% of the moms that I work with land on, I'm a bad mom. It's really hard to do a good job when we have an internal belief that we've somehow integrated as it means I'm bad. So what if we could uncover the hidden underlying triggers of postpartum depression and anxiety and discover that we're not broken as a mother? And that's kind of been my mission. And so what I'm presenting is actually a hypothesis, right? I'm merging things together here. I haven't done a ton of study on it. This is anecdotal, but it's based on my understanding of physiology. First, I want to talk about the uncomfortable symptoms that moms talk about. And we see the symptom, right? And so we have the symptoms, obviously, of sleep deprivation and exhaustion. I mean, what mom isn't sleep deprived and exhausted? We're supposed to be. We're supposed to actually be in an altered state. But our world is such that we're torn between the two. We can't live in this world and be exhausted because days turn into nights and nights turn into days. Because a newborn doesn't have a sleep schedule. A newborn is wide open. They're actually a sponge. Their brain and their entire system only understands the world through their primary caregivers, in particular, their mother. They are not a separate being. We're actually born nine months premature. As a human species, we should be incubating for another nine months. But of course, we wouldn't be able to birth our babies if we left them in for another nine months. So nature has it that we give birth and then we're actually supposed to be in like a kangaroo connection, as if we had a pouch. Traditional people know this. We keep our babies close for a reason, not because it's trendy to attachment parent, but because it's instinctive and it's required for brain development. So that baby is not separate. It's one, it's completely wide open. It's actually in the brainwave pattern of delta. And when we're in delta, we are no thing. Obviously, things like unmanageable emotions, overwhelmed, underwhelmed, panic, fear, terror, intrusive dark thoughts, negative mental chatter, lack of luster of life, feeling numb, shutting down, feeling hopeless, despair, a sense of loss, emptiness. This shows up in relationship challenges. 
and that feeling of isolation. Right, these are the symptoms. Now, we all have varying degrees of these symptoms, but when we have an accumulation of these symptoms, well, shit gets bad. Sorry, I swear a lot. I hope that's okay. <laughs> but everybody else was swearing, so I thought it'd be okay. Okay, so remember I said I want to change the conversation. When we see things through the labels and the diagnostic lens, we are not actually listening to what's going on. We're labeling. But really what's going on is all of these things, all of these symptoms are information. It's information, it's always information. What do we do with information? Well, if we could learn what to do with that information, we might feel empowered to be able to listen and change accordingly. But the information is telling us that something's off in the environment, not just off, with you. How many of us immediately think it's all me? I mean, I don't know a mom who doesn't. What's wrong with me? It means there's something wrong with me. It also means that there's something off in the environment. So this is my little, you know, good, is Ernestina here? Oh yeah, good, learner person. See, I'm going to do a break. You're going to turn to the person next to you and just take a moment to digest what you've heard so far. What's coming up for you? Just take a moment. Turn to the person next to you. Okay, just wrapping up that little wee conversation. Bringing our attention back over here. So one thing that I forgot to highlight, I'm really glad that you're all having a conversation, this is really good. Now I want your attention. <laughs> um, not too long ago, I did a, um, a day-long workshop for uh, perinatal professionals. And, you know, as professionals, we like a lot of information and we like to stay in the head. And just like Gordon Neufeld said, 
it's hard sometimes to be in the head when we're talking about matters of the heart. And I was so excited to engage conversations with these professionals and share stuff that I'm actually not sharing here because it's, it's you know, really specific to the field. And what happened was a really, really profound learning experience for me. I was godsmacked by the trauma field. What do I mean by that? I mean that we can't start to engage the conversation of trauma without deep, deep reverence. It's a very, very heavy topic. It is not a head topic. It's a heart topic. It's a soul topic of conversation and of experience. And so the minute we start to share about the notion of trauma or challenges with mental health, it stirs shit up in all of us. Either we were personally impacted by something that I might be talking about or people have been talking about over this conference, or we know somebody who was. And yesterday, Ernestina talked a bit about regulating our nervous systems. And so I just want to take a pause and respect the fact that as we continue in this head conversation about matters of the heart, it's okay if something surfaces for you. It's okay if you need to take care of yourself. It's okay if you need to cry. It's okay if you need to leave the room. It's okay if you need to tap back and forth like we did yesterday. It's okay if you need to just take some deep breaths. We'll close with a grounding exercise. So I just want to acknowledge that just notice what's arising. The first important aspect of healing from my understanding of the brain research that I've done is this act of observation. Awareness is key. And awareness is connecting to the information that's arising in my system. So what is all of this telling us? What is all this information telling us? The easiest way to understand it is through the lens of stress. So I'm really glad that Gordon Neufeld, was, that was what it was all about. I made up this word toxic stress load, but it's too much stress for too long with no way out. And that idea that I didn't get the end of the day that Gordon Neufeld was talking about, that's a, I loved that statement. I'm like, oh my God, that's it. So of course I went and changed stuff in my slides and incorporated some of his things, but that's it. Too much stressful information coming into my system with no way out, and I don't get the end of the day. This is so true for so many moms, right? Especially when we start to take into consideration the, the exhaustion. But I wanna look at healthy stress versus toxic stress, because the entire motherhood thing is stressful, right? So it's not about eliminating stress. It's about being able to decipher between which, what is too much 
and what is a healthy amount, and what do I do about it? So first of all, stress in and of itself is not the culprit. No one escapes stress because motherhood is stressful and birth is stressful. Did you know that as a mother is bringing forth life and pushing her baby, and her baby is about to be born, okay, so I'm talking about a vaginal birth, that there is, first of all, the highest amount of oxytocin pulsing through her system at that time. The other time we have that high amount of oxytocin is at death. And we have an enormous amount of adrenaline which is the stress hormone, right? One of them. And there's a reason for it. The baby needs to be in a high state of stress at birth. It needs a lot of stress hormone because it's what ignites the baby to breathe. So stress isn't bad. Sometimes, we need a lot of it because it mobilizes us. It ignites us. It's one of the things that makes us move into action or respond. But that idea of too much stress with no reprieve causes harm. That idea that there's no end to the day. To feel. To feel. I'm gonna talk about the window of tolerance. I'm curious how many people here are familiar with the window of tolerance. Okay, great. This is um, Dan Siegel's work. For those who are educators, you may have heard of Dan Siegel, especially the Yes Brain, things like that. Um, he's fantastic in his research and his writings. Okay, so our primary environment informs our window of tolerance. Our window of tolerance is what um, informs us how much stress we can tolerate before it's too much. We all have a different window of tolerance. That's why some of us can tolerate an enormous amount of stress and it doesn't turn into toxic stress because we know what to do with it and our system can actually digest it. And the second piece that I want to make sure that we understand is that the perception of the stressful circumstance is key. In other words, how you've made sense out of it, how you are making sense out of it. This is an important part of the conversation. So we can take a look here and see that stressful events are inevitable during the childbearing continuum, all the way from conception to birth, right? So all of these areas are factors that could contribute to the stress that a mother's experiencing, her primary partner is experiencing, her environment is experiencing. And we need to take all of that into consideration because one of those things could tip her out of that window of tolerance. It could just be the thing that broke the camel's back. That sounds so bad, but <laughs> you know what I mean. So conception, pregnancy, risk factors, um, 
labor, birth, delivery, breastfeeding, postpartum challenges, financial challenges. I, this was supposed to say identity, not identify, right? Mothers go through an identity crisis. Of course we are, because there's actually an aspect of ourselves that's dying in the process of becoming a mother. We have to let go of that identity, of that person that we once were as we embody this new character, this new archetype called the mother. So here's my little diagram of the window of tolerance. This is a Coles Notes version. If you don't understand this after, I'm happy to answer questions. So as you can see in the center is what is known to be the optimal zone of arousal. This is how, this is kind of, I look at it like a, a girth, you know? Some of us have an optimal zone of arousal like this, meaning that we have a very small window of tolerance to, and then a couple stressful things come in and we're flipping out of it, okay? We're moving into dysregulation and hyperarousal. Research suggests that those developmental years, including in utero, inform our window of tolerance. Okay, so yesterday we talked about the ACEs score, for example. So there's suggestion that the more adverse childhood experiences we've had, the um, the decrease window of tolerance we have. In other words, we can't tolerate a lot of stressful information without becoming dysregulated. It kind of makes sense. Now, can we strengthen our window of tolerance? I would argue yes. And some research suggests that we can actually grow our window of tolerance. In particular, with the practice of awareness or mindfulness. So let's look at what happens when we are overloaded by stress. So you can see any one of those contributing factors that I talked about could be interpreted as too much stress. You're taking in all of this stressful information from your environment, from your circumstances, it's needing to kind of be negotiated in your window of tolerance, meaning your nervous system is trying to sort it out. And if it can't tolerate it, then you're gonna pop into what we call dysregulation. What is dysregulation? Dysregulation means that we're feeling that activated nervous system, that response, in which we don't feel like we have much control over what's going on. Some of us feel this as, and I'll go through the symptoms, but you know, we can start to feel the flutter in our heart. We can start to feel sweaty palms. We can start to feel like we're disoriented. We can start to feel confused. We can start to forget what we wanna say, we, right? These are signs of dysregulation. We can start to feel emotions and, and that sensory gating system, right? We have a leaky sensory gating system going on here. Many of us live in dysregulation. We've adapted to it. I wish I could draw, <laughs> right? 
few of us actually live our days in our optimal zone of arousal. Because our environment is chaotic. If we take a look at this external environment that we're living in right now, that in and of itself is chaotic. We're plugged in 24-7 to devices in social media. That in and of itself dysregulates our nervous system. We're constantly adapting to live in these dysregulated states, and that seems normal. So add a couple other stressful circumstances. Now I'm in hyperarousal or hypoarousal. Hyperarousal anxiety, hypoarousal depression. We flip flop between the two, and I'll explain that. I prefer the term hyperarousal and hypoarousal versus labeling as you're depressive, you're anxious, you have this disorder. How about the conversation is, my system can't tolerate any more stressful information. And so it's actually responding appropriately. It's sending off the alarm bells saying, something is off. Okay? So here's a list of symptoms of hyperarousal. Hypervigilance, panic, racing heart, fear, terror, racing mind, flashbacks, reliving, disorganized thoughts, disoriented, decreased focus and attention, memory loss, rage and anger, uncontrollable rage and anger, uncontrollable emotional reactions, anxious. I'm sure all of us have felt something like this occasionally. Symptoms of hypoarousal, shutting down, numbing out, falling asleep, sleeping a lot, underwhelmed, intrusive negative thoughts, avoidance, disorganized thoughts, disoriented, decreased attention, memory loss, lack of feeling, right? Talked about that with Gordon Neufeld. Depressed, loss of enthusiasm, disconnection from others and self. When we're in hyperarousal and hypoarousal, we're disconnected. And what did Gordon Neufeld say? That the biggest thing that we need is proximity to calm the nervous system. So I want to talk a bit about what influences our window of tolerance. <clears throat> I see that there are three large contributing factors. So one is our primary environment, and this is where epigenetics comes in. The second is the event itself. So either current events or past events, or an accumulation of events. And the third is the belief. So epigenetics is a fancy word that basically is outside the gene, okay? How many of you are familiar with epigenetics and the research of epigenetics? Okay. So what epigenetics is telling us is that our environment influences the gene expression. It turns the gene on or off. 
For those of you who are familiar with um, biology of belief, Bruce Lipton's work, Dr. Bruce Lipton's work, he actually is the father of epigenetics. He discovered it in his, his cellular biological research. But what he discovered got him kicked out of his, um, whatever, professorship or university. Um, what he discovered was that it's not just the environment that influences whether or not that gene is turned on or off. It's the perception to that environmental information that triggers the gene to turn on or off. Don't quote me on this, but I recently um, heard him speak live, and I believe it's that each gene has over 3,000 genetic expressions. What does that mean? That means that we are not destined for our genetic destiny. It means that there are over 3,000 possible expressions of that gene. And so the power of perception is incredibly influential on whether or not we go down the vulnerabilities that we might have or whether or not we change our genetic destiny. Powerful information that clearly is controversial, but I'm including it. So our primary environment, and I'm gonna talk about this, has a huge influence over how we internalize what's happening to us. And this is important to understand for perinatal mental health. The event itself and how we respond to that event has an impact, and also the stories that we tell ourselves. What are we telling ourselves about ourselves as it pertains to that experience, as it pertains to this environment? So, how are we doing? I just get a nod of heads. Sometimes, you know, when the crowd's quiet, I feel like they're bored. <laughs> Not bored? Okay, good, thank you. Okay, good, good, good. Um, okay, so epigenetics. For those of you who want to geek out, geek out on this, I recommend Googling um, Dr. Bruce Lipton, and I also recommend watch the documentary called In Utero, okay? But like I said, where they stop in the conversation is, we are influenced by our primary environment, which is in our mother's womb. This is the conversation. Many of us may have heard this. Well, so when I hang out on that idea, I'm like, damn, I really messed up my kid. Right? I'm responsible as the mother to create a healthy primary environment for the development of this baby so that they have a good window of tolerance, so that they know how to tolerate stressful information, so that they come into this world healthy, resilient, right? Able, capable of responding so that I reduce the risks. We know this. I didn't stop the conversation there because I realized that placing all of that attention on the mother was part of the problem once again because we're not looking at the environment, the impact that all of this is having, that I am not an isolated mom incubating my baby and it's all me 
that's responsible for whether or not this baby is gonna have a good environment or not. So I started to float down the rabbit hole. So if it's true that our environment influences how we think, feel, and behave, if it's true that our environment actually is responsible for downloading how to be a human being, really, is what's going on, at birth, here you are imagining, let's just imagine, here you are, if you want to, in utero. And you've got your mom's environment. So you're just kind of floating back and imagining what was going on for my mom. And you get a sense of what's going on for your mom. Some of you may have stories, some of you may not, but you know, I've been impacted by my mom's environment. And then this is where the whole, my mom really pissed me off. She really messed things up for me, right? You spend years of therapy talking about this. But your mom wasn't in an isolated environment. Your mom was downloaded a blueprint in her genetic expression as to how to tolerate stressful information, how to be a human being, how to think, feel, and behave. And she had an environment. What was going on in that environment? What was going on for the primary partner? What was going on in her extended family? What was going on in her cultural religious milieu, her community? What was going on in the dominant worldview at that time? It's probably not much different than now, but you can see how we can keep going back and we can see how we are imprinted by layers and layers and layers. It's not isolated. Now I could go deep into this and you'd be like, what did I just sign up for? But <laughs> it's important to consider these things. Why? Because first of all, it gets you out of you. And one of the problems of trauma is that we become very self-absorbed and we think it's all about me. It's really hard to imagine that maybe there was a whole, many, a whole bunch of factors going on here. And maybe those first seven years, which actually imprint us, download how we think, feel, and behave. Okay, We've, we had no power or control, right? So I'll often share this with, let's see what's next, okay. So you can see how um, I've, I've layered it here that there's these layers of influence that are coming down that had influence over your mother, that had influence over you. And you can imagine you're incubating and you're bringing all of that in and you come into this environment, did you have any control to do anything about it at that time? The answer is no. And I don't care if you are like new agey where you think maybe you chose that. Okay, the, the reality is you had no power to influence your environment coming into this world while you were incubating. So you got all this information. That's not your fault. That's actually nobody's fault, it just is. And then from birth to age two, you're completely wide open. You're in this like really brainwave pattern state that I'm not gonna go deep into that actually absorbs all of this information, 
codes your system before you can even think, feel, and behave for yourself because you are one with your environment. And then from two, three, four, five, two till six-ish, some seven, you know, these are vague numbers, our brain moves into a different brainwave state, okay? In which we start to move into the imaginal realms and we're still bringing in all of this information and we're not fully conscious in the ways in which we are as adults, meaning we can think for ourselves. We have a sense of self. Our brain isn't there at that age. So we're completely informed by our environment again, and we have no control to do anything about it. We really don't. From seven to 12, we move into what's considered to be the alpha brainwave state. So we move from delta, then we go into theta, then we go into alpha. And then at about 12, we move into beta. Beta is where we all are. This is left mode processing. This is taking in information. This is analyzing information. This is knowing I have a me and a you and I can have a sense of boundary. When we're there, we have a bit more power and control to start to change. But prior to that, we don't. So if we've been downloaded with all of this information before the age of 12 and we had no power to influence our environment or change our circumstances at all, then that's encoded us with how we think, feel, and behave throughout our lives until we become conscious of it. And so let's bring this back to the mother in the postpartum who most likely for the first time in her life, maybe, is at a point where she feels so utterly vulnerable and broken and desperate to change because the survival of her baby depends on it. It mattered enough to do something about it. Prior to that, we've adapted. We got really good at just adapting, right? Whether those adaptations were healthy or not doesn't matter. Our whole point is that our being is actually motivated to thrive. It wants to. It will do everything in its power to protect us to live. Now you're in the postpartum, you're vulnerable, shit hit the fan, and you're looking at all of this for the first time, like I said, because it matters enough, because the survival of this offspring is dependent upon you 100% of the time, and you can't understand why you're internalizing everything as I am bad. I failed, I'm wrong, I'm not good enough. Well, that goes way back to your primary imprint. Okay, moving on. So, <laughs> that just happened. <laughs> Let's get light about this. What are some additional stressors that can be added to an already stressful event that can trigger a toxic stress load? This is kind of my theory. I see that there's three distinct ways that toxic stress load can get triggered in this time of our life. So one is birth. 
Birth in and of itself is totally stressful and utterly vulnerable, and it is going to fly us into the most uncomfortable experience of our life, guaranteed. And you know what? We don't talk about that enough. What I say to people when I used to do childbirth education, which I don't anymore, but what I used to say is like, this is going to be the hardest thing that you've ever come up against, and it is gonna turn you inside and out, and you're gonna wanna crawl out of your skin. I was like, wow, I don't think I wanna do this. I mean, I'm the odd, I'm like, yeah, bring it on. <laughs> but no, seriously. So birth in and of itself is stressful. Now add on top of it a bunch of shit going wrong and a bunch of people that you don't know, strangers coming in, poking and prodding and doing a bunch of stuff that you don't even understand is happening and you're terrified of the survival of you or your baby and we're not looking at this as a potential for trauma that is eventually gonna result in a mom being completely isolated, destabilized, depressed, psychotic, wanting to kill herself, and not understanding why she can't connect to her baby. Because we've just completely interrupted the most important time of our life. And we've left her alone. I'm sad now, this is emotional to me. We left them alone. What is wrong with our system and our culture? But, oh, by the way, the mom thinks she's wrong. Do you understand why this is an important conversation? So, if we had the most beautiful birth experience, and we had an orgasmic birth experience, which does exist, it's complete opposite extreme, but it exists. <laughs> I don't know if any of you have ever seen the movies of orgasmic birthing stuff, but it's, it's fun to watch. <laughs> I wanted one of those, it just didn't happen. <laughs> um, but we can have an instinctive birth experience that we perceive was like actually quite good and we got a lot out of it and we feel empowered by it and we tolerated the normal amount of stress that we should tolerate, and we were supported, and we were heard, and our voice mattered in that experience. And we're still struggling in the postpartum. So then we gotta look at an accumulation of pregnancy or postpartum stressors, right? The stress maybe of the financial load, the stress of a toxic relationship, the stress of lack of identity, the stress of isolation, the stress of exhaustion, the stress of I don't get to work anymore, and guess what? Motherhood feels empty. I don't understand the meaning in it. There's no value in it. So who am I as a mother? I'm not out there contributing to our consumer's culture anymore, and nobody cares about me. That's stressful. And let's imagine that we had the most beautiful birth experience. We feel really empowered by it. And we have great um, support in the postpartum and we had a very easygoing pregnancy. So really there's no additional stressors that we can identify, but I'm still struggling in the postpartum. Then the final piece that I add here is that we need to take a look at the history. Do I have unrecognized or unresolved historical trauma? that I didn't even consider looking at until the stress of birth was enough
to trigger it. So assessing for these three areas, I think, is important, and I would argue rarely are looked at. Um, so as I talked about, we have to look at the primary environment, we have to look at the event itself, and then we have to take a look at the beliefs. So what are the beliefs about the event? So how is this mother making sense out of that stressful event? What is she telling herself about the challenge? And this is where story comes in. And this is where meaning-making comes in. Dan Siegel says that we can measure how well we have healed based on the story we tell. I bet you you could ask Sarah and Marilyn that question because they're telling their story. And every time they tell their story, they're probably dropping more into it. They get something out of it every single time and it's weaving together and it's offering them meaning. So the same thing is true about our stories of becoming a mother. And as educators, you work with parents all the time, and yes, I'm speaking specifically to the mother here. Right? So what is the story I'm telling? Do I even tell the story? I hear this all the time. I don't talk about it. Nobody wants to hear it. It doesn't really matter. It's over now. I never want to go back there. I never want to look at that again. Well, if we have a culture of mothers of all generations, of all cultural backgrounds, races, who don't want to talk about their birth, and we're saying that the most important point of mental health is that we have secure attachment and proximity. Well, there's a problem. Personally, clearly I'm passionate about this. So we need to start telling our stories. We need to start listening to how we tell our story. We need to pay attention to what part of our story don't we want to tell and why. And maybe the more we start to tell our stories and the more we start to weave our story into a story we really want to tell, not a wounded story. It begins as the wounded story, but it changes into a story of passion, empowerment. It might even change into a story of anger, but anger has fuel. Anger has more fuel than shutting down and not feeling. Two powerful questions that I often ask my clients, and I, they came because I asked them to myself all the time, to help us start to become aware. So remember, the beginning phase is always awareness. The beginning is just noticing what's happening, noticing the information that's arising. Information arises as sensations, feelings, emotions, images, memories, and thoughts. We just start by paying attention, and then we ask ourselves, 
what am I telling myself about this situation? Right? So I'm struggling. I'm a mom, I'm struggling. I don't want to pay attention to what's going on inside of me because what's going on inside of me feels totally overwhelming and I don't know what to do about it because nobody ever taught me. This is it. We weren't taught what to do with all of this stuff that's going on, you know? And what am I telling myself about myself as it pertains to the situation? And this will most likely get to your core belief, your core imprint. Like I said, it often goes to I am bad. Okay, let's take a break. Turn to the person next to you and discuss what you've learned so far. Um, so I think it's really important to highlight, and again, again, this is all an overview as you can get a sense of, it's a pretty deep, complex topic of conversation. But the implications of a toxic stress load on a mother, in particular, are pretty profound. And this is where I get to include some of Gordon Neufeld's words. But the first implication is this loss of connection. So I wish Gordon was here because I actually wanted to pose a question. <clears throat> My understanding of what happens to our nervous system when we are in a heightened stress response or a trauma response, based on Stephen um, Porges's work of the polyvagal theory, is that when we have too much adrenaline and cortisol pumping through our system with no reprieve, it actually puts us into what's called a dorsal collapse, which basically means it shuts off the vagus nerve, okay, which runs from here all the way into here. Our vagal nerve is connected to our heart for a reason. It's known as the, the tertiary branch of our nervous system, the third branch of our nervous system that is responsible for connection. It's responsible for oxytocin. Oxytocin is the love hormone. I talked about Dr. Michel Odant. He was doing research on this years before we started talking about it now. And his biggest thing was, if a mom is in stress, she doesn't get oxytocin. If she doesn't get oxytocin, she's not gonna have the flood of love hormone pumping through her system, which is going to generate an instinctive response to feel love and bond and connect. Well, we now know it's connected to the vagal nerve, or the vagus nerve, I might be saying it wrong. And, and so when we are trapped in that stress response, the visual image I have is like it comes in and we've got like a clamp. So we don't have this flow happening. So we don't have an instinctive desire to connect and attach to our babies. 
I have heard so many mothers say, I just didn't feel love. Took me a year. I didn't really feel connected. Actually, I've heard mothers say to me, it felt like a stranger. That's trauma. That is not instinctive. That is not normal. That's a normal response. That's a physiological response to an abnormal circumstance. How do we get this flowing? Well, we need to get that person out of the stress response. So why aren't we taking this seriously enough to start to look at the practices, the protocols, the procedures that are happening? And why would we not look at disarming the stress response immediately following a birth experience? in which a mom might be showing signs and symptoms of a toxic stress load? That's my question. Loss of playfulness, right? We learned about this the first day. Um, I hear playfulness, I hear creativity. So one of the gifts that came back to me throughout my healing journey, um, for the first time ever, was an enormous amount of creative energy, which I believe is our life force. So to me, the idea of playfulness is the idea of our life force coming alive, and we just want to move it. We want to express it in its instinctive way, and it's super beautiful. The loss of feeling, right? We can't feel the feelings. And especially we can't feel the feelings if we feel grief and disappointment, but we have nowhere to put it, and it's not culturally accepted. This is called disenfranchised grief. That adds stress to an already stressful situation. Loss of rest, which is already compromised. And then this idea of the implication being, I call it postpartum unrest, but all those symptoms that I talked about that we would label as depression or anxiety and even psychosis. And then this being incoherent or dysregulated. So according to um, the newer research, it suggests that mental health, what that means is that our system is coherent. What does coherent mean? It means that our skull brain, our heart brain, our gut brain, and our whole central nervous system are in harmonious communication with each other. If they're not in harmonious communication with each other, they're dysregulated. Big words that Dan Siegel uses is that all the differentiated parts need to be speaking to one another. And when we're stuck in a toxic stress load or a stress response with no reprieve, which is also considered to be trauma, those parts are dysregulated. They're not talking to each other. That puts us in a state of anxiety. Why? Because our system wants to be in harmony and it wants to connect. So when it can't, it's gonna feel super uncomfortable to motivate us to do something about it. And then finally, the implication is loss of meaning. 
And as I said before, as a human being, if we're not weaving together the tapestry of our stories, of our narratives, then who are we as a human being? What's the point? Right? Our stories are critical. They connect us. And moms need to start sharing their stories to create meaning. So I'm not going to get into this today because the big question is, now what? What do I do with all of this? How do I feel better? I just want to feel better and I want to feel better yesterday. Make it better. Didn't you notice this even yesterday? I was sitting with my table and, you know, I'm hearing these amazing, powerful stories being shared and we're all so bloody uncomfortable. We want it to be better. We want to do something about it. And part of the work is actually sitting in the discomfort and learning to be okay in the discomfort. Because when we can actually settle ourselves down enough to start to listen, guidance comes through, we get information, we can listen to that information, we can become our own expert. But there are a few things you can do. Um, <clears throat> so first of all, I think it's critical to connect so to connect with at least one safe person who can hold your story. This could be a professional, it could be your primary partner, it could be your grandparent, it could be your friend, but find somebody because proximity is critical, right? Identify what your toxic stress load is. So we talked about that. Identify what that is. What are the factors? Sometimes just mapping it out and going, holy shit, no wonder I'm losing my bloody mind, right? So sometimes just getting it out and seeing it is helpful, listing all of the stressors. So we want to be able to discharge the toxic stress from our system, and Gordon Newfield talked about this when he talked about tears and shaking. Physiologically, and, I'm, and again, I didn't get into all of this, but physiologically, there's two things happening. One is we have a physiological stress response and we have to complete it. So for those of you who are interested in learning more about that, you can um, look up somatic experiencing Peter Levine's work. He's big on this, or Dr. Van de Kolk. So we have to complete the stress response. And remember when Neufeld talked about there is no end of the day, meaning that stress response never completed its cycle in the day. Well, I don't know about you, but I went home that day and I felt so much better knowing that by the end of the day when my partner comes home, and I'm like discharging everything that I've been holding throughout the day and I often result in tears and then I'm like, what well, fuck, am I ever gonna stop crying? I'm like, oh, this is a sign of health. Actually, every single day, I need to be discharging this stressful information. Health is not about, oh, I'm finally at a place in my life where I just don't have to discharge any of this stressful information because I'm so zen. <laughs> right? No, health is, I know what to do. 
I know how to identify that my system has taken in too much today. I know what to do to get rid of that stressful information, and I know how to shed a tear. Hey, and I can go to bed and sleep because I actually moved it. I like that idea. Okay, so foster safety in your immediate environment. This is critical. We know that if we are in an unsafe environment, that our system will not discharge the stressful material. It will only do it in, a, in safety. And sometimes, for some of us, safety really is the therapy office, or safety is the friend's house, or Boyle Street. Engage in mindfulness practices to cultivate awareness. I talked about this already. Hug lots, even with animals, right? Petting animals, animal therapy. If we're not ready to hug a human being because human beings are bad, because they hurt me, then start to pet animals. Gathering community, community is critical. We heal collectively. We do not heal in isolation. The whole Western approach to psychology is very isolating. I believe that we heal collectively and we need each other. Move your body, feel your body. I mean, I don't think I need to say this. We know that that's so important. Question your internal narratives. So although there are controversial opinions on cognitive behavioral therapy, which I hold my own opinions about as well, um, this idea of questioning like I showed you today is very different. Because when we can get to the core belief and feel it, we can move it and change it. Engage in creativity, play. I still am challenged by the word play. Um, but I like the word creativity. Uh, and then pray, sing, ritual, ceremony. These are proven to be healing methods or modalities or practices. And then obviously to rest, often take naps and put down your phone. Okay, so that... Um, brings my presentation to an end and just before I close. Um, so this is my book. I have copies of it out front. Um, if you'd like a copy, I'd be happy to sell you a copy. If you are a practitioner and you would like to have copies on hand to give out or to sell to your clients, talk to me and I can offer you a wholesale um, price on that. And then what I've done with all of this is that I've created two programs, I've created an online program called Healing After Birth, and it can be uh, do-it-yourself or it can be a guided process with me that takes into context everything that I've just shared, including the, the material of my book um, and the program that I ran in the city for a few years, just gathering data and information to see if it was effective. Um, the other program I offer is called Effective um, Foundational Program for Effective Healing, and really it goes deep into everything that I talked about. Generally speaking, it's not specific to mothers, and um, it's, it's offering you a map to learn how to navigate your interior world so that you can know what to do with all of the information that's coming up, because we're most often afraid to feel the feelings. So thank you very much, everybody. I think I'm done. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you.